Hey, podcast fam, Eric here. And if you're an affiliate marketer or looking to monetize your online presence, you need to know about ShareASale.com. ShareASale is not just an affiliate network. It's your gateway to a world of opportunities. With thousands of high-paying affiliate programs across various niches, ShareASale connects you with top brands ready to collaborate with content creators like you. Imagine earning commissions for simply sharing products you love. Whether you're into fashion, tech, or lifestyle, Share Us Sale has got a partnership waiting for you. Ready to turn your passion into profits? Head over to milwaukeemafia.com slash shareasale and sign up today. It's free, it's easy, and and it's your ticket to unlocking a new revenue stream for your business. You're listening to Milwaukee Mafia, your weekly podcast dose of Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history. Hey everybody, welcome back to Milwaukee Mafia. I'm Eric Walterkins. I'm Gavin Schmidt. And Gavin, got anything new going on? Yeah, so uh, this week, you actually don't know in advance this week, I don't think. Pretty no, sure. No, I don't think we ever mentioned anything about what was coming this week. Okay, so for the people at home, this is this is in the future. You're going to hear this in a couple weeks. But for us here in this timeline, I was in Cudahy last night. Okay. And I gave a presentation in Cudahy. So I just am going to use my same notes <laughs> that I used in Cudahy for this podcast. So how, are we jumping forward? In We in, are sort of jumping forward. Okay. So what, what time frame are we looking at? We're Let's, covering a, a wide range. What I have here is I've got a very brief version of the life story of one guy. So it's going to cover a number of things that we'll cover in more detail later. Think of this as like a sneak peek into, into the future. Into what's to come. Yeah. It's like cause in our normal setup, we're in the 1950s. We'll go back to that next time. But this will go a little bit ahead of that. Talking about a guy named Steve DeSelvo. Steve DeSelvo was born in West Dallas. Uh, how he became a member of the mafia, I do not know. His dad was not in the mafia. His uncle was not in the mafia. His father-in-law was not in the mafia. So I don't know how he met these people and, and they said, hey, come and be part of this. Not sure, but he got a got pretty high up there. Could some of these family members have been in the mafia and you just don't have record of it? Oh, that's certainly possible. Okay. Yeah. I mean, not that I'm aware of, but it's certainly possible. His first major brush with the law came during World War II when he was burglarizing a local OPA office. And the OPA, because I know you're going to ask, the OPA is the Office of Price Administration, which during World War II, and I think other times, but during this time, they were responsible for handing out ration stamps. So when gasoline and sugar and other things were being sent over to the military in World War II, you had to go pick up your weekly or monthly or whatever stamp book so you didn't get too many gallons of gas or too many pounds of sugar because... People had to limit that stuff. It was not for you. It was being sent away. I'm glad you clarified that because I was sitting there here thinking, should I know what the OPA is? No, I don't think a lot of people really do know what the OPA is because it's not really, it's not a thing anymore. Right. And I assume it was basically just a thing that popped up during the world wars. Pretty, pretty much. I mean, because we don't, we don't ration anything anymore. But of course, now if you break into one of these offices and you take a bunch of stamp books, That's pretty valuable because now people can get all the gasoline they want. He doesn't really make headlines until 1959. At this point, he's already 40 years old. So who knows what he's been doing this whole time. When the FBI starts taking a strong interest in the mafia, they've got Steve DeSalvo right at the top of their list. They're like, this is the guy. Along with Frank Stallone, 
Buster Balistrieri, and Joseph Guerrera. These were their top enforcers and muscle men who were going around and straightening people out and beating them up and calling them nasty names if they weren't paying their monies. So Steve DeSalvo, right at the top of the list of guys that were known to be trouble. They also were strongly connected with gambling. The bookies in town would have to pay these guys who would then kick the money up further. And they hid behind laundry businesses. Legit, totally real laundry businesses, but... When you dropped off your dry cleaning, you would also, if you were a bookie, you would drop off that week's receipts. You'd say, here's the money I made this week. And Steve would stop in and he'd say, all right, I'm here to pick up some suits and that bookie money. <laughs> and so he'd go around to a couple different, these dry cleaners and pick up the bookie money. They would meet up at various restaurants and bars, but they would also meet up at a place called the Para Corporation, which we'll get into in a future episode in a lot more detail. And this is where they would buy old slot machines and jukeboxes and things and then put brand new siding on them and then say that they were brand new slot machines <laughs> and vending machines and they put them back into the bars and things like that. Kind of, I, I have to say that the mafia was creative with some of their definitely <laughs> creative. some of their adventures that they embarked on. Mm-hmm. January 1963, Kenosha Jukebox distributor Tony Birnat is kidnapped and murdered. We'll cover this in a lot more detail later because I wrote an entire book about it. <laughs> DeSelvo comes up because shortly before the murder, he visits this guy at his office and says he'd like to buy into the company. He says, I don't really want to sell my company. And then he's kidnapped and killed. So we'll go into more detail on that in a future episode. But DeSelvo, obviously a suspect in this case, since he was one of the last guys to see this man alive and was kind of threatening him when he did see him. <laughs> One month after the Burnett murder, this will actually tie into the last episode we did. DeSelvo was mentioned as a suspect in the death of Fond du Lac cheese businessman Leroy Summers. So now this is a death of a grande cheese person. In, or was Not it, the grande cheese That guy. was the one cheese owner that was killed that we talked about last week? Yes. Okay. not He's not from grande. And they thought it was suicide, but the wife didn't believe it was suicide. And they wanted to look into it more. And by the time they looked into it, he had already been bombed and all that, so they couldn't really do anything about it. But this is the guy who was suspected of putting the heroin in the cheese packages and sending him around. Somehow in all of this, apparently he had been meeting with Steve DeSalvo. It's very fuzzy, and I'd love to know more about it. But DeSalvo comes up again as a suspect in perhaps this is a murder, perhaps it's not. I don't know. At the end of 1963, his name comes up a third time. This time is a suspect in the bombing of a bakery in Milwaukee, the Shortino's Bakery, which was on Brady Street, which actually still is on Brady Street. He's suspected is of that it, bombing. Is it still called the Short Shortino's Bakery? Sure is. Awesome. Yeah. So they've been there for over 50 years now. All right. So... The gambling business is getting bigger and bigger, so they're no longer really dropping things off at the cleaning after a while. They have to open up an apartment that they call the office. Because, of course, that's what you call it. It's like when you open a bar. You call it the office. So you say, hey, honey, I'm going to the office. But you're really going to the bar. <laughs> Same thing here. Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. So a bunch of bookies are in there. Um, the man heading it up, his name is the sheriff. They call him the sheriff. And another guy who helps him out is known as... Bigfoot. <laughs> These are great nicknames. <laughs> They've got a bunch of telephones in there and they're answering them 24 hours a day. Very busy office of calls coming in, bets being made. Could be football, basketball, horse races. They'll bet on anything. For example, during this time, a famous gambler known as Bobby Pick. 
He had heard that gamblers in Milwaukee were being harassed by the mafia and forced to pay a percentage of their bookie money. So one night he goes to Gallagher's, which is a nightclub, and he's motioned into the bathroom by Steve DeSelvo. DeSelvo asked him if he had been pressured by any members of the mafia. And Bobby Pick said no. And he said, if I was pressured, I wouldn't pay them anyway. Then as Pick left the bathroom, a man with a pistol in his belt blocked the door. But DeSelvo said, it's fine. He can go. So strangely enough... Bobby Pick apparently never did pay these guys, and they actually let him leave. It's kind of strange. He would even say later on that he was having trouble getting money from his gamblers. So even as a bookie, it was hard for him to kick up money because his gamblers would often stop paying. He had to collect money from one guy by stealing all of his tropical fish. I got to ask this question because now I'm a little confused. Sure. From Based on what you just said, it sounds like when they're doing gambling, mm-hmm. the mafia would really didn't do the gambling itself. They just kind of skimmed the money off the bookies. Is For the that, most part, yeah. That's right. Okay. For the most part. I mean, there's some bookies who were definitely mob guys, but then there's others who aren't. But if you aren't, you're still paying part of that money. So they did have their own network of gambling, but they also yeah. tried to control everybody else. Yeah, like, like he, the guys in this so-called office, they were directly connected. They still had to pay the 20% off the top, but it wasn't like they were being threatened to do it. It was all part of the business model. Gotcha. DeSelvo does try to go into some legitimate business, at least debatably legitimate. He goes into one company as vice president called the Matt Corporation of America, which, you know what they do there? Make mats? They don't make mats, but you're close. They Clean put, the mats? They clean the mats and they put the mats into like the entryways of businesses. So like when you go to a restaurant and you wipe your feet, they would be the guys who put the mats in there. He shared office space with a man named Herman the German. <sighs> His name is Herman Sosne, but they called him Herman the German. Well, they really came up with some creative names back then. Huh? They did. <laughs> he ran a company called Greenfield Development, which was a investment company. And DeSelvo would occasionally work for him going around doing appraisals. In one year, he made $7,500 in appraisals that he actually reported on his taxes. <laughs> wow. Uh, and $7,500, that's pretty good money. And this is still the 1960s. So that's solid, solid income. And you figure if you claim 7500 he probably did at least 28000 <laughs> Sure. Could, could be true. Could be true. <laughs> DeSelvo and Sosne branched out. They opened up a 114-unit apartment complex in Mundelein, Illinois. And uh, they had another friend of theirs named Dominic Principe, who was another suspect in the Tony Burnett murder. He became the complex manager. Well, they did get in a little bit of trouble for this because it was found out that the money they used to purchase and build this apartment complex... They've filled out some very fake loan paperwork to get this money. (laughs) But by the time they were caught lying on the loan application, they were already paying it back. And so they decided not to really do anything about it. They're like, well, he's paying it. So, you know, I guess if you lie on your loan application, but you pay the money, that's really the the main thing they care about. I got to imagine back then, too, that lying on a loan application was a pretty common thing and pretty easy to do. Could be. Because, I mean, I just can't see systems being there to verify really much of anything. It's a good point. You know, you know, I'm not sure. So Steve DeSelvo is a wanted man. The FBI is following him around constantly. The Milwaukee Police Department is following him around constantly. In fact, the Milwaukee Police Department puts on a 24-hour surveillance on him in 1968. Steve DeSelvo has a friend in the police department who tells him this. And DeSelvo says, you know what? Instead of getting mad about this, 
I'm going to have fun with this. So he starts driving around and he drives to Gary, Indiana. Then he drives out to Iowa. And almost every day thereafter, if he has nothing better to do, he'll just drive down to Illinois and drive back home. Because what what more fun is it than having the Milwaukee Police Department follow you around (laughs) through multiple states? (laughs) Just really trying to be annoying to them. He eventually does sue the police department for harassment, but the judge, it's like, you know, they're just doing their job, man. I mean, (laughs) and honestly, I see his point on that. Like, it's a little excessive (laughs) to being followed 24 hours a day across, you know, multiple states. But apparently the judge was very lenient about that and said, yeah, that's what they do. I think it's great that he just decided, I'm just going to drive across state lines now and just see how far they will go to follow me. Yeah. So the office uh, continues on through the 1970s and the new guy running it is a man named Sam Labrizi and Sam Labrizi will stay around for the rest of this story. DeSalvo still the big boss, but the guy on site who actually hangs out in this apartment is Sam Labrizi. Frank Balistrieri, the mob boss himself, briefly goes to Sandstone Federal Prison in Minnesota for tax evasion. Steve DeSalvo drives him there personally and drops him off at the gates and Steve thinks he's going to be the boss while Frank's in prison. And he's not. He actually doesn't get that job. But it's not that big of a deal. Frank's only in prison for 294 days, so not even a full year, and he's back out. DeSalvo and his other enforcer buddies meet up for breakfast almost every single day at a restaurant called The Pancake House. The very clever restaurant name, The Pancake House, which is on Highway 100, just south of Grange Avenue in Milwaukee, which actually I think is more like the Hales Corners area, but south of Milwaukee. I'm curious, you mentioned that Steve DeSalvo did not get the job as the mob boss while Frank was in prison. Who did? Or was there just really no official boss? No, in charge. In charge while he was in prison, he put in the man uh, Joe Caminiti or Joe Camel. Now, is that your nickname? Or no, is that's, that what, that's actually what they called him. That's I don't know if anybody called him that, but that's what the FBI wrote as like <laughs> what people called him. Sometimes I wonder if these are really things people got called or if the FBI yeah, is just, just being clever. Yeah, but. just made up a bunch of creative names for everybody. Mm-hmm. Around this time, while they're meeting at this pancake restaurant, a man named Tony Pepito, who will come up again later in our story, not th- not today, but later on, because he's a pretty big guy, pretty big figure. He comes out and he works as a bodyguard for Steve DeSalvo. He had just been in prison for supplying prostitutes to comedian Sid Caesar, who you probably don't know who Sid Caesar is, but he was a pretty big deal in like the 70s. So. His name sounds familiar to me, so I've probably heard something mentioned. Yeah, it, but I've so he was, you know, it's one thing to be pimping, like, but when you're pimping to the stars, he, he got some headlines for that. At one point in time, Steve DeSalvo is served with a subpoena by state agent Gary Hamblin to appear at a John Doe hearing. And we've talked about John Doe hearings in the past, like a Wisconsin thing where they ask people questions to try to find crimes. DeSalvo did not want to take the subpoena. He said, I'm not taking anything. Don't give me anything. I'll knock you on your ass. I'll twist that mustache around your neck. And I'm assuming this is a direct quote that you're reading. This is right a direct now. <laughs> quote. This is according to the agent. How accurate it is, I don't know. But that's what he said was said. DeSalvo actually did not show up and he was charged with contempt and fined a thousand dollars. I don't know if that's a good deal or a bad deal. Maybe it's better to pay the thousand dollars and say the things that they would have made him say. So I don't know. 
September 1975, Steve DeSalvo is appointed to the board of directors of Dell Chemical Company in Menominee Falls. What he knows about running a chemical company? I have no idea. And how does he get all these gigs? Yeah, I don't know. The company is under the leadership of Rocco Hughes, which is not his real name, but that's the name he went by. And they were very successful. They had a headquarters in Menominee Falls, but then a second branch office in Reno, Nevada. So they did very well. But then it was determined why they did very well. And that's that there was some bribery involved. The chemicals they sold were what were called municipal chemicals, which was things that cities would buy. One example would be like swimming pool chemicals. Right. So they're selling these things and they'd go to the cities and they'd talk to the people who buy things on behalf of the cities. And they'd say, if you buy this much, great. If you buy this much more, we'll write you a check. But they weren't writing the check to the city. They were writing the check to the guy buying it. Mm-hmm. Oh, so every time I place an order, you're going to send me a $100 check. Sales start going up because you start getting these $100 checks. Company eventually collapses because I don't know if you know this, but that's not legal. <laughs> I would imagine not. <laughs> you can't bribe people to buy your, your products. Not cool. At one point in 1976, police are still following him. So they see Steve DeSelvo pull a gun out of a trash can outside of Menominee Falls McDonald's. <laughs> Don't know who put that there, what it was used for. Um, but the police, you know, they show up and they say, hey, uh, we just saw you take a gun out of a McDonald's trash can. Can we have it, please? <laughs> so he hands it over and they trace it and it's fine. What he was going to do with a trash can gun, I don't know. But it wasn't traced to any crimes or anything like that. So, And how he knew there was a gun in the trash can. Right. I and mean, obviously he probably put it there. I'm he imagining. probably put it there. But why you would hide a gun outside of McDonald's? What was going to happen that day? I don't know. Okay, the FBI continues watching him, not as thoroughly as the police, but they're following him a little bit. And they see that he's now no longer going to the office. The office still exists, but he's meeting up with Sam Labrizi outside of St. Michael's Hospital. They meet daily in the parking lot. And they start taking photographs of them popping the trunk and money's coming out. And then after the money gets handed over to several drives over to Frank Belstery's house. And again, he takes the money out of his car and goes in the house. So they've got every step of the way now. They say, okay, we got a bookie giving money to Steve and Steve then handing the money to Frank. We've got this. Fantastic. One last piece of this puzzle for the FBI. They bring in special agent Joe Pistone, also known as Donnie Brasco. <laughs> He comes in undercover, and through a roundabout way, he convinces the guys in Milwaukee that he is also a member of the mafia. But he's from New York, so they don't know him. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, dude, you're not you're not mafia. He's like, dude, I'm mafia in New York. <laughs> and they're like, oh, okay, cool. And they call up a guy in New York, and the guy in New York's like, yeah, we know Donnie. Donnie's cool. Which, But Donnie is not cool. So, uh, bad phone call. So how do they make that phone call and how does the guy know? Like, were they just using another mafia members in New York's name? No. So Donnie Brasco, he had been undercover for like six years at this point. And he had been going around New York and making friends with some mob guys. So then he'd be able to go around and be like, I know this guy. I know this guy. I know this guy. And then they would check, you know, they'd be like, 
I don't know. Let's call up these guys he says he knows. And they're like, oh, yeah, I've known him for years. So it took him a while to build this up. But it was it was enough. It was enough that people saw him hanging around and he dressed the part. He acted the part. He would, strangely enough, have stolen merchandise for sale, which, you know what? He has stolen merchandise because he has the stuff that the FBI has recovered. <laughs> so they hand it off to him. And then he's like, look at this stuff I got from this heist. <laughs> That's awesome. It's a pretty good trick. But anyway, so he comes into Milwaukee. The FBI is like, okay, we got to really put the linchpin in here on this gambling case. So they get him to come in, get to know some people, get him involved where he's now going to be one of the top bookies. He's like, I got to talk to these guys. So he talks to Steve DeSalvo. And Steve DeSalvo, after finding out that he's okay, even though he's not okay, but they think he's okay. They find out that Steve DeSalvo is, is not crazy about the current bookies he has. He says, I'm afraid they're all informants. They're stool pigeons. And he says, quote, we would need Castro's army to kill all of the informants in Milwaukee. I'm not sure <laughs> why Castro's army, but apparently it's the, he thinks there's a lot of leaks. <laughs> uh, and he says, he goes, Sam Labrizzi, he's fine. He does okay, but... He's not a great mathematician, so I don't know if his numbers are coming out right. We could use a new guy in there. Sure enough, Pistone offers, Donnie Brasco, Joe Pistone, offers to take the job, and they say, yeah, we'll get you in there. Well, he doesn't even actually end up doing it, but just agreeing to it by that point, he's heard enough from them, they got their case. Mm -hmm. So you know what happens? The FBI swoops in and arrests everybody. Okay, so by everybody, clarify. I'm assuming Steve DeSalvo. They got they got Steve DeSalvo. They got Frank Balistrieri. They got his brother Peter Balistrieri. They got Frank's two sons, Joe and John Balistrieri. Wow. They got Sam Labrizzi. They got Dennis Labrizzi. They got Peter Pichero. They got Carl Michelli, who went as his name was Matches. <laughs> Matches Michelli. And they got a couple of these other guys who are you know known bookies that are paying into this operation. So they arrest tons of people and they charge them with all these gambling offenses and they charge some of these other guys with like Las Vegas skim operations and threatening other businesses and a bunch of things that really like weren't, it's not important for this story because this is really just like a gambling story. But I mean, everybody, everybody gets arrested around the same time. This is 1981. Everybody is arrested. The trial takes a couple years because they keep filing motions to delay and everything else. But finally, in May 1984, Steve DeSalvo, who is now 65 years old, he is found guilty of these gambling violations and sentenced to eight years in prison. Pretty serious. So this is just crazy to me because Steve DeSalvo, based on everything you talked about, mm -hmm. well, he was a really bad dude. I mean, there yeah. wasn't a point. I, I think there was a point you mentioned where he kind of got lost and we don't know what he was doing in that period of time. Yeah. But the times we know what he was doing, he was always doing something bad. Yeah. And it took them until he was 65 years old yeah. to actually <laughs> bust him for something. Pretty much, yeah. Which is crazy. And they were following him around day and night. They follow him point. around constantly, <laughs> but they never, they never got him. Wow. And he was a suspect in a number of violent crimes, but they never got him. They finally got him when he was 65. <laughs> he goes to prison in Texas because this is a federal prison. So you get sent any random place in the country they want to send you. So they send him to Texas. He speaks to other guys there. He tells them. He says more than he should be saying because some of these other guys in prison, they could turn around and they tell other people and they tell the FBI and they tell whatever. So he was talking about one time that he made a car bomb. <laughs> 
<laughs> and the guy, of course, tells the FBI, hey, Steve was telling me about when he used to make car bombs. And then he said, when I get back out of here, I'm going to go into the heroin and cocaine business because that's where it's at. But that did not happen because he got out of prison in May 1990 and he died one month later. So unless he had a very busy month of dealing heroin and cocaine, I, I don't think he was doing very much. Got out one month later. He's dead. This will kind of give you a heads up. I mean, we'll talk in more detail in future episodes about some of the gambling stuff, all the murders, cocaine. I mean, all this stuff will come up again when we break it down into smaller pieces. But this is one guy, and it kind of gives you an overview of some of the things that will be happening. Another question for you is you had mentioned in there that when they made this big bust, they had arrested Frank Bellastri. Yes. But I think in a previous episodes, you've said that Frank Bellastri never got in trouble for anything other than maybe like some tax evasion stuff. Well, yeah. I mean, that even came up today. He did a little under a year for taxes. So with this arrest, was he inevitably just not charged with anything? No, he was. This was the end of Frank as well. Oh, okay. So he was never really in trouble but then at the end, he was. In a similar situation, Frank gets out, but pretty much he dies within a couple of years of getting back out, too. Okay, so, so he probably went to jail for an extended period of time around the same time as Steve DeSalvo. Yeah. And then once he gets out, he just dies mm-hmm. very shortly after Yeah. That. Interesting. I can almost see why the mafia would kind of die. Because is this around the time where you think the mafia really is kind of giving it that blow yeah. To it. And I mean, this is a pretty significant bust that puts a lot of high up people away. Right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. So I won't get too into this because it's actually fairly complicated. But in the 1980s, they were taking down people all over the country. Milwaukee was a great example, but they did it in New York and they did it in other places because they had a new federal law called RICO. Mm-hmm. And I'm not even going to start on that because it's very complicated. But essentially what RICO does is you can get in trouble for having a corrupt business. And it was on the books for years before they started using it because it was designed to say, well, the mafia is an organization. It's corrupt. Therefore, we can just use this law. But the problem was is to use it in that way. They had to prove that there was a mafia and they had to prove that people were members. Like, if you're going after, like, a business, it's really easy to say, well, who's the president? Who's yeah, the, the treasurer? Pa- there's paperwork that says right. that. <laughs> right. But when you're using against the mafia, like, you can't just say, well, this guy's a mafia member. Therefore, he's part of this corrupt organization. You have to first prove the organization exists and then prove who's right. in it. So it took him a few years before they could start using it. But once they figured out how to use it, they were taking down people all over the place. Can you talk a little bit about how did they prove... Who was in the mafia? Oh, man. Okay. Or is that like way too, too far? But I'm not going to go into super detail because like probably do, you know, five years from now when this podcast reaches the 80s, we'll probably do this. But partially from informants because informants were telling them this exists. But then later on in the 1980s, they started getting some really juicy wiretaps and they had heard for years about this thing called the commission. And the commission is this thing in New York where the heads of the different mafia groups would meet and have like business meetings, <laughs> like mob business meetings. And they had heard about that. But then they finally got a recording of people talking about it existing. And then strangely enough, Joe Bonanno, who came up in the cheese episode, he's like this big New York mob guy. He writes a memoir 
why you would write a memoir, I don't know, but he did. And even in the memoir, he talked about being a member of the commission. So he basically published, like, here we go. Here's <laughs> here's your proof that there's this organization where we all meet and talk about stuff. Of course, you know, he didn't go into detail what they talked about because he's not going to admit to crimes in a book. Right. But he gave them enough that they could actually use his own book against him on trial. Really? Yeah. Wow. I bet you people are not happy that he wrote that book. Uh, today, I don't know. But at the time, they were pretty mad. Yeah, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Cool. And now, I guess my other big question with this, you mentioned that this was about Cudahy. Or is it just that you did this presentation in Cudahy? I did this presentation in Cudahy. And the reason I picked this out is because Steve DeSalvo lived in Cudahy. Cudahy. He lived okay. on Holmes Avenue in Cudahy. Okay. So I picked him out as an example of how to tie it into Cudahy. Yeah, because I didn't really find... Uh, no, it doesn't really. Yeah, yeah. I no. Like, like, he wasn't doing a whole lot in Cudahy. No, 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 no. <laughs> but I use that as an example. And I and for the people who were there, if anybody was there and they're hearing this now, I hope it was good. I had a great time. I actually put together a real PowerPoint. It was very fancy, wow. very pretty. I had a full presentation. And we had a full house. We had, we had 86 people there. Holy cow. Yeah, that's pretty good. It's not my record. It's not my record. But, you know, in these uh, times, those <laughs> are some good numbers. numbers. Yeah, that's yeah. fantastic. So I'm really excited about that. Yeah, but, <laughs> but, but this is being the day after. I'm really excited. That was the best turnout I've had in years now. So I was very happy with it. I'm just curious. Does it make it any harder to do it when there's that many people? No, it makes it easier to do it. Really? Yeah. Why? I don't know. These are like, this should be like the Patreon question. This is like, you're asking me the behind the scenes stuff now. But no, I'll tell you, I guess, for public speaking, I can't speak to everybody. Maybe other people are different. But for me, if I have to talk to five people, I'll get nervous because you're connecting with those people. But when you have a full room, if you have 50 people, 100 people, whatever, you're not really like, it could be zero people because you're not really interacting with any of yeah, them. Yeah, I suppose you're in a room with five people. Yeah. You're going to look at some point at every one of those five people and kind of their face is going to become implanted in your head. Right. Whereas if there's 86 people, 84 of them or you yeah. know, like 81 of them, you probably don't even realize they're there, but you, you're not like seeing them. Right. It's a strange thing. I don't. People obviously, they can't tell from this podcast or from the presentation. You know, when I'm doing a presentation, like I'm very fun. I'm very outgoing. Um, not that that's fake. It's not fake, but... It's hard for you to it's, do. It's not normal. Yeah. I mean, I'd prefer just to hide in a corner most of the time. <laughs> so it's different, but it's just that's part of the job, I guess, is when you do a presentation, you got you to gotta be out there. You can't just sit in a corner. Yeah. And you get used to it. And you get used to it. Yeah. yeah. I can say that I've done probably the most presentations I've ever done in like the past five years in my life. And now I pretty much have no fear of doing it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I get nervous, which I think everybody does before you do it. Sure. But wow, we've really gone off the course of this I know. podcast. So. I know. Why are we way over here? <laughs> People are getting the behind the scenes conversation. <laughs> uh, but anyway, that's the Steve DeSelvo story. And a lot of those things will come up again in future episodes in a little more detail. But uh that kind of gives you an overview of like the 60s through the 80s of some of the bigger topics. There's a lot more, but some of the bigger topics that are going to come up. Very cool. All right. As we wind this one down, I always like to say, 
As usual, if you can, please leave us a podcast review on your favorite podcast player. Mm -hmm. If you are so generous, please go to MilwaukeeMafia.com and find the link to support the Patreon. And Gavin, if you want to hit them with some contact info and then we can wind her down. Well, you mentioned MilwaukeeMafia.com. There's also MilwaukeeMafia at gmail.com if you want to email me directly. If you go to the Facebook, it's Facebook.com slash MilwaukeeMafia. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode, and we will be back next week with a new Patreon. So please support us. Thanks a lot, and we will see you next week. All right. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Milwaukee Mafia podcast. Join us next week for another look back at Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history.